Good morning. Thanks for joining us today at New City Church. Um, today we're going to jump right in. It's going to be a little bit different. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, typically I'll start with a story and then we'll read the text and kind of give some points as we go throughout the text. Today we're going to do things uh, a little bit differently uh, for two reasons. One, today's text that we're going to read is a um, it's impactful to all of us to various degrees have been probably impacted by what Jesus is going to be saying here. And also, it, it might seem that Jesus is saying something he's not saying unless we read all of it and kind of understand the culture of what's going on. And so today, it's going to be a little different. Uh, we're going to read all of the text. I'm going to try to explain what's going on culturally so that we have a better appreciation for what's happening. And then if you're a note taker and you have the notes that we hand out and you're like, when is he going to get to this point? Like you start, like this is taking too long. All the points are going to be at the end and we're going to try to do them pretty quickly. Okay. And so today in chapter 10, we're continuing our series through the gospel of Mark. We've been going through the gospel of Mark for a while now. Last week, we saw Jesus talk to his disciples about the seriousness of sin and how it can lead to death in your life and in my life. And so we need to take it seriously. And today we are going to see another teaching of Jesus. Um, that has really big implications. And what's interesting is that even today, what Jesus says today about what we're going to read about marriage and divorce is quite amazing, even more so if you consider the context in which he was saying it. And so again, today, whether you have been divorced, whether you've been impacted by it, um, maybe your parents, friends, wherever you might fall on the spectrum, I know many of us have been impacted by this in various ways. Let me just encourage you. If you can track with me to the end, I think you'll see what Jesus says here is amazingly beautiful. Uh, and so we're going to read it together. And so today we'll be in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. To set this up, um, in the ancient world, in first century Rome, uh, the Jewish people, just like everyone else, because they're part of the ancient world, uh, marriage uh, was not seen as an equal union for the mutual benefit of a husband and a wife, right? Now, maybe today it doesn't always play out like that, but you know we would agree the point is that for a husband and wife to love one another and to care for one another. Uh, rather, in the ancient world, uh, the institution of marriage, uh, its main purpose was the establishment of family, children, and legacy, right? To help you survive. Your children took care of you for your name to continue throughout the generations. Um, it wasn't necessarily about love and caring for one another. And so women were viewed essentially just like property, uh, like anything else. Now, I'm not saying, as I say that, that husbands and wives didn't love each other. Certainly there are times where husbands, because they could legally do whatever they wanted to their wives and get away with it, treated their wives poorly. But there are also probably many examples of husbands and wives, even in this cultural kind of thought process where women were kind of things that men owned, they still love each other. Now, just so you know, to set this up, um, even in America in 2022, we are not very far removed from this mindset, right? A hundred years ago, women couldn't even vote. Even more recently than that, a woman couldn't open a credit card or, or go open a bank account or get a loan without a husband or a man. And so this is the setting that they are in, that women de depend on their husbands for their standing in society and all these things. And so marriage was not viewed, generally speaking, as a man and a woman loving each other. It was another thing that men were in control of. And so this is the context that Jesus is going to speak about marriage today. Uh, and it says this, starting in verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, He set out from there, so Jesus and his disciples, and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Then crowds, uh, crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. 
And so as we've been saying a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is continuing his journey that leads him to Jerusalem where he's going to give his life. Uh, He's not doing a straight shot like the fastest route possible to Jerusalem. Uh, But what he's essentially doing is it's kind of the last stop in all these various areas uh, that he is going to. And so as is always the case, when people hear about what's going on, what happens, there's a big crowd, everyone wants to hear from Jesus, Uh, people want to be uh, healed by Jesus and all of these various things. And then here's what it says, verse 2. It says, some Pharisees came to test him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, just to set this up here, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, what they want to do is what they often do is they want to test Jesus to find a way, uh, maybe to find, to show the people that Jesus is really against the law of Moses. He's against the Hebrew Bible. They're trying to set him up. Now, uh, what's interesting is uh, they're asking him the question, what is lawful grounds for divorce? Now, lawful here not being like the Roman Empire, what do they say you can do? But like biblically speaking, according to the Old Testament laws and the commands, what do you say? Uh, essentially, if you were to put modern language on it, the Bible says the scenarios in which a man can divorce his wife. Now, this is even more tricky than maybe some of the other times that the Pharisees have confronted Jesus because different sects and different uh, streams of Judaism taught different things, right? They, they taught different things as to, as to what, was, uh, uh, what was okay for grounds for divorce and what wasn't. And they all found their root in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. So I just want to read it so we can understand where it's coming from. It says this, and it'll be on the screen. Deuteronomy 24 says, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing, and we'll talk about that in a second, to him, because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. If, after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her, and sends her, sends her away from his house, or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled, because this would be detestable to the Lord. Now, there might be a couple of things there you're like, I'm not, what does that actually mean? I'm not sure that I feel comfortable with that being said. We're going to get to some of that in a second. But the thing I want to point out here is here, the debate in Deuteronomy 24 is around what is indecent or what is displeasing. Uh, Because like many times, there are not specific commands in the Old Testament for every situation you come across. Just like today, right? The Bible doesn't say how many hours a day you should spend on your phone, right? It doesn't say that. And so what people try to do is they try to develop rules and maybe boundaries in their life that they think are wise, but they aren't explicit commands. And so for lack of a better term, what basically you had at the time of Jesus is you had the more conservative groups. And for some of these more conservative Jewish sects, um, only adultery was grounds for divorce. Only if a wife cheated on her husband uh, could the husband, you know, before the Lord, lawfully divorce his wife. And then you had more theologically liberal groups uh, that would essentially talk about as things as simple as finding someone else more attractive. So if a man finds another woman more attractive, or if he doesn't like how his wife runs the house, even on small trivial matters, um, if that is displeasing to him, that actually constitutes lawful divorce. But that being said, every strand of Judaism did believe that there were certain things that made divorce legal. The question is what made it legal? And here is where the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They want to know, Jesus, what do you say is the lawful grounds for a man to leave 
his wife. And then here's how he responds, chapter 10, verse 3. It says, he replied to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. Right? So Jesus then asked them what the law says, or what, what do they think? And they respond with Deuteronomy 24, which we just read. Now, notice, they don't actually answer the question. Right? They don't actually uh, say what grounds divorce is permitted. They just say that it is permitted, that you can do it, that Moses permitted divorce papers to be written. Now, for us to understand, again, what's happening here, uh, divorce papers or a divorce certificate, depending on your translation, uh, was typically what that meant is that if a man wrote a certificate to divorce to his wife, that there were, it was for two reasons. Now, again, for us, it doesn't actually sound like this was actually good for the woman, um, but, it, but it actually was. And so there's two reasons that you would write a divorce certificate. One, that there would be some sort of repayment of a dowry or a financial gift to the woman, because again, being a single woman today is difficult. It was even more difficult back then, because you don't have a legal standing. And so there would be some sort of financial thing that went with it to help her get on her feet for a while. And it would also save her from being accused of adultery. That if a man divorces his wife, he then, because again, back then the woman had no legal standing, he can't then go accuse her of adultery or then later change his mind and say, actually, I want you to be my wife again because the divorce papers mean that she is legally okay to remarry and that she is no longer bound to her husband. And so that is what they said. Well, he just, Moses just says that we can write divorce papers if we want to. And so here's Jesus' response, verse five. But Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. In other words, because of the hardness of heart, Moses, who God gave the original law for the Israelites, made a concession, but that concession doesn't change the intent of marriage, right? The concession doesn't change the intent of marriage, and looking for the exceptional measures uh, when a marriage fails does not also help you discover the true meaning and what the intention of marriage is. So trying to find the where you can get out of marriage does not actually set you up to actually have a good marriage. So for example, it's like if you were learning how to fly an airplane, and all you ever did was learn how to crash land if you were ever in that situation. Well, that would be good, but if you don't actually learn how to fly a plane, learning how to crash land isn't going to help you, right? Or it's March Madness, basketball is going on right now. Imagine if a team, all they ever did during practice was run a play for the last three seconds where they have to get a three-point shot to win the game. If you find yourself in that situation, it's great that you know how to run that play, but you'll probably never be in that situation because you haven't actually learned how to play the game together, and so you are always going to lose, this is what's happening here. You, Jesus is saying, you guys are focusing on the exception instead of focusing on the reason behind marriage. And so Jesus continues, verse 6, he says this, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh." Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
And so again, what Jesus is doing is he is deriving from Scripture itself. And so in your Bibles, it might be in verse 7 through 9, it might be italicized or bracketed or bolded. Uh, this is a quotation from Genesis chapter 1. Uh, God, Jesus is quoting from Genesis himself or itself about how and why God created marriage. And so here, Jesus is not deducing a conclusion from Scripture, like the scribes try to do, to try to figure out what is um, displeasing actually means. Instead, what Jesus is doing is he is simply declaring God's will over and against what is lawful. So just because you can do it, it doesn't actually mean that you should. And so for Jesus and God, because he is God himself, marriage is a God-ordained a covenantal union between a man and a woman, that's what Jesus is talking about here, and it is further argued by the fact that the new husband and the new wife will no longer be bound to his parents, but to their spouse. The husband and the wife are no longer under the authority of their parents, but they are now one, they are now together. And so twice in this passage, in verse 2 and verse 4, the Pharisees ask about the exception to marriage, right? They ask Jesus, what does he think? And then they quote back to Jesus, Deuteronomy chapter 24. And then in verse 8 and 9, Jesus gives two answers. In verse 8, he quotes Genesis chapter 1, um, that they are male and female, they are one flesh. And then in verse 9, he adds that therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Right, that Jesus declares that God's original will for marriage would be one flesh that would not be separated. Now, again, this is maybe even you know somewhat radical for our culture today that you commit yourself to a one person for life. This is even more radical back then with a different cultural understanding about the belief about marriage. Because again, in this setting, a man is legally over his wife and is the sole deciding factor on whether or not they stay together. Now, there are some, you know, exceptions to this rule where the wife, we know historically divorced the husband, but that is by far the exception. It very rarely works out that way. Typically, the man has all the deciding factor about whether or not they stay together. And so again, in ancient Judaism, just like all ancient cultures at that time, a woman's place in society largely depended on her relationship to a man. Whether when she's a young child, her, relation, her father, what her father's standing in society is like. Um, when she gets married, what her husband's standing in society is like. And if she becomes a widow, if she has uh, sons, what her son's standing in society is like. Right? Her standing in society was solely based on the man who held all the decision-making power. And yet, Jesus here does something different. Jesus, in this text, expresses something much different. That in God's intent, original intent for marriage and creation, a woman is not a man's subject, but his equal. And just so you know, this is not some idea that Jesus comes and like radically changes and shows people that they've gotten it wrong. This is Genesis chapter 1, from the beginning. This was God's design. That male and female are distinct with different qualities, biological differences. We have all sorts of very obvious differences between us, but they are still, in spite of those things, or in the midst of those things, rather, men and women are still equal in worth and value, and in value in marriage. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so again, here, this is the greatest difference between what Jesus is trying to do and what the religious leaders are trying to do. And what culture does, right? Because cultural uh, um, practice at this time basically meant that the husband, again, has control over his wife. And so Jewish and all ancient divorce policies made the man, for lack of a better term, uh, the lord of the marital relationship. He decides if they stay together. He decides what happens. And she has no stay. 
And yet, according to Jesus, who is also quoting scripture, it is not the man or the woman, but it is God who is Lord over the marriage. It's why in verse 9, Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one, or more literally, actually literally in the Greek, it says, let no man separate. So in our culture today, men and women, no-fault divorce, anybody can kind of initiate the process. In the ancient cultures, it was just men. And so Jesus is literally talking to the men here and saying, you don't have the authority to decide what is valid and what is invalid. This is only belongs to the Lord. And then he says this in verse 10, goes a step further. When they were in the house again, so Jesus, this is later on, as often happens, Jesus many times explains to his disciples in more detail what he explained publicly. It says this, so when they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. So even if he legally divorces his wife and he marries another woman, he has now actually committed adultery against his wife. Also, verse 12, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery as well. She does the same thing. Now, again, Jesus, for us to understand how radical this is, Jesus, again, explains to them more detail, and he says something radical. In other words, that just because someone obtains a legal divorce, whether legal in the eyes of the Romans or legal in the eyes of the religious Jewish leaders, that doesn't mean that the marriage is therefore invalid to God as if we get to decide how marriage ends. So they might say it, legally it might say it, but just because you have said it, it doesn't actually mean in God's eyes that it is over. In other words, according to Jesus, you can legally divorce your spouse and still commit adultery before the Lord for breaking the covenant you made before him. You might think you're good, but that doesn't actually mean you are good. Now, this was such a shocking statement that in Matthew 19, that also records this exchange with more details because Mark is typically quick. But in Matthew's account of it, after Jesus says this to his disciples, in Matthew chapter 10, 19, verse 10, it says, his disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Now, you might be like, why? Just stay with your wife. Like, what's the big deal? Uh, Perhaps in the moment the disciples were just overreacting, we don't know, but this is their comment to Jesus. The question is why? Well, the reason is because they are now confronted with the idea that a marriage is a covenant that you need to work on and not something that you can get out of if it no longer works for you, particularly to the men who have no legal repercussions for leaving their wife. He says you don't get to do that. Again, for us to understand how this actually sounded in this cultural mindset, Um, Remember, getting rid of your wife is no different legally than getting rid of other property and replacing it with something else. Now, again, we know psychologically and emotionally, maybe it was difficult, but legally, it was not any difficult. It was not any different. That if something is not working out for you, you can go get something else. I mean, it would literally, and this is not an exaggeration, this would literally Jesus be saying to one of us, anyone who sells his car and buys a new one is guilty of theft. But if Jesus said that to you and to me, you'd be like, what are you talking about? I've had this car for a while. I found a better one. It works better. Uh, it's got the features that I want. Uh, it's a different color. I've, I, let's say I'm only going to have one car at a time. Why can't I sell my car and get another one? Like, how are you going to tell me that that is like theft? This is why the disciples uh, respond this way. This is so countercultural to what they assume that they could just do whatever they wanted with their spouses. And Jesus is saying that you can't. 
but you can't do that. Now, again, for clarity purpose sake, for, uh, just to be clear, uh, what's happening here, Jesus' perfect, uh, uh, purpose here as he's responding to the Pharisees is to argue for the permanence of marriage, not to find the exceptions of how to get out of one. And he's, he, his purpose here is not necessarily, or not necessarily, it's not uh, to accuse people of adultery. Even if this is possibly an implication for some of the crowd that were listening, some of the men that were listening, his purpose in explaining this is not to try to condemn everybody for committing adultery. His purpose in explaining this is for them to know that for Jesus, for God himself, your spouse is not a piece of property. Your spouse is your bone of your bone, is the flesh of your flesh. And so that being said, um, when trying to apply <laughs> what we're reading here, what Jesus is saying here to our context, there are a couple of things we need to recognize and understand. And so I'm going to say these briefly. They're going to be on the screen. They're not part of the fill-in-the-blank notes, but if you want to write them down, you can. I just want to mention four things that are going on in this text to help us understand the appropriate way to interpret and apply what Jesus is saying. Here's the first one. <clears throat> the first one is this, uh, that Jesus is responding to hostile questioners who are trying to trap him. All right, so understanding what's happening here, that his, his answer to this question is directed at bitter opponents whom he has already accused previously of mishandling scripture and distorting God's will, who we already know are literally trying to kill him. So what Jesus is doing and how he is talking and what he is saying is to a hostile crowd who is trying to trap him. It's just important for us to understand that as we understand and apply this text, that he is responding to hostile questioners who are trying to trap him. The second thing we need to understand when reading this text is that Jesus is presenting God's ideal for marriage, not addressing every possible scenario, Okay. He is, Jesus is responding, or he's, a, he's answering, what I'm trying to say, is presenting God's ideal for marriage. He is not addressing every possible scenario. So there might be times, or there certainly, I'll put it this way. If Jesus was asked by a different crowd, by different people, the truth of his answer would not change, but the wording and how he conveyed it would certainly be different. Of course, there are exceptions. We're going to talk about this in a second of things that make marriage difficult and times where marriages should be uh, dissolved and the spouses should go other ways. But in this scenario, he's presenting God's ideal. He's not addressing every possible scenario. So to try to deduce what to do in every situation from this text alone, I would submit to you would not be wise. The third thing we see here is that Jesus is not addressing people contemplating divorce or struggling with a broken marriage. Again, if he were, his truth would not change. But how he's talked to them, what he said, how he would respond, we absolutely know it would be different, right? Jesus is not addressing people contemplating divorce or struggling with a broken marriage, so that's important to know. And fourth and finally, Jesus is not addressing someone who has experienced a divorce. That's not who he's talking to here, right? We should, therefore, we should not expect in this text instructions on pastoral care and support of people who have been divorced. Um, one of the things that's tricky about reading scripture um, is that it's not a theological textbook. Yes, there are theological truths that we can take from it, but it's the story of God's love and grace and redemption towards us. And so the situations that God, that Jesus finds himself in dictate how he teaches and what he actually says. If he was addressing someone who was experiencing a broken marriage, who had just walked through a divorce, I guarantee you, his comments and how he would talk to them, his tone would be different. 
And so all that you and I can do here is think and consider what he might have said in any other various situation. Again, his truths wouldn't change, but how he said it, how he communicated it, how he counseled would certainly be different. And so in spite of those questions, here's what I just want to lay before you what we do know. Right, here is what we do know, that in Scripture, we do see that there are permissible grounds for divorce. So that's the question, right? Jesus' ideal is for marriage, to stay together. What happens? Are there any situations where, where it is not sinful, where God would not, act, would not be displeased at all if we left our spouse? Uh, so there's a couple of situations that won't be on the screen. I'm just going to explain them to you. Again, one is in Matthew 19, which is this same text, but in Matthew, and there's more details. There's more words from Jesus captured in that story. And Jesus in Matthew 19 mentions adultery as a legitimate reason for one spouse to leave their other spouse and not be a sin in the Lord's sight. So if your spouse commits adultery, if a husband or a wife commits adultery on their spouse, that is a legitimate grounds to leave your spouse. In Romans chapter 7, it talks about if your spouse dies and you remarry, you have not committed adultery. So if you're married, your spouse dies, in the eyes of the Lord, you are free to remarry. There is nothing wrong with that. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about how if you are a believer and your unbelieving spouse abandons you or leaves you, you can remarry. So if you're in a situation, his specific example was with someone who was married to someone who wasn't a believer, and your spouse leaves you, you can remarry and you have not done anything wrong. So scripturally speaking, we have adultery and we have abandonment as it seems to be the only grounds where uh, biblical divorce would be permissible. The question then we all have, right, is what about abuse, right? Scripture does not say anything about abuse, whether it's verbal or physical or sexual. So what do we do? Uh, again, I would, I would submit to you that the Bible is not a rule book. It is not to say that we can't learn things from Scripture, and there are many things where Scripture is very clear. And so when Scripture is clear, it would be wise for us to follow, where there are explicit commands of what to do in certain situations or certain seasons of life or whatever. We should do what Scripture says. But in the areas where explicit commands are not given, what we should do is we should seek wisdom, we should pray, we should ask the Spirit to guide us, we should talk to community in our life, Christian community, and figure out what God might want us to do. And here's what we know. When you take scripture as a whole and how God cares for his people, it is very clear um, that God doesn't want people to be abused. It's very clear how many radical laws there are about the poor and the marginalized and the widows and the children and the women and how you're supposed to treat all these people who do not have power in the ancient world. It is very clear that God does not want his children to be abused. And so I just want to submit this before you. I know everyone has got different uh, thoughts on this, but as a pastor at New City Church, as your pastor, if you call New City Church home, uh, you should know that I have personally counseled people in abusive situations to leave their spouse. Um, If you are the victim of abuse, you need to know that it is not your fault. And oftentimes in abusive situation, uh, the spouse, typically the man, though not always, will hold the divorce card over their spouse as if to say, if you do this, you've committed wrong. Where scripture would say, if you have abandoned your spouse, you've committed wrong. And so I just want to tell you, if you you find yourself in that situation, if you're here, if you're watching online, maybe I'm the first pastor to tell you this, we will believe you if you say you've been abused, and we will help you find a a healthy situation. Um, In our understanding, abandonment, in my understanding, would absolutely, or abuse would absolutely fall under abandonment because your spouse has abandoned the covenant that they made to you. Now, that being said, um, 
if you have been divorced, maybe in an unbiblical manner, because again, it's not how we, the no-fault divorce, anybody can do it, is not how Scripture presents this, right? And so if you have been divorced in an unbiblical manner, or even if you have been separated or divorced in a biblical one, or one where it was not your fault and it was not what you wanted and you tried to reconcile and the other person had wanted nothing to do with it, regardless of what you have placed, you have found yourself in, even if it wasn't your fault, this feels very heavy, right? This feels really heavy. And so if you're struggling, if you are feeling guilty, if you are feeling condemned, you might wonder, well, how, where does that leave me if I have been divorced, if I have separated either lawfully, scripturally, or not? Um, what should I do? Um, again, uh, Scripture doesn't explicitly talk about this scenario. However, there are two times, and I'll try to do this quickly, there are two times where Jesus explicitly interacts with people who either have been divorced or who have done something that would have caused a divorce. There are two times. And so what we can do is we can read these passages and just kind of uh, deduce or imagine how Jesus might address the people who have been part of broken relationships. One is in John chapter 8. I'm not going to read all of it, but a few of the verses will be on the screen. In John chapter 8, Jesus travels to Samaria. In the middle of the day, this woman comes out to draw water from a well, and so they start talking, which was very anti the rules at that time, especially because she was a Samaritan and he was a Jew and they hated each other. She is getting water in the middle of the day because she has been married five times and she's, uh, uh, she has been... Um, uh, sorry, John, John uh, sorry, this is John chapter 8. I got this wrong. Let me talk about John chapter 8 first. John chapter 8 first is when uh, Jesus has been presented to, um, he's been brought a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery, right? Of course, the man's nowhere to be found. I don't know why. He's just as wrong as she is. So in John chapter 8, uh, she gets brought before Jesus, and there's all this crowd, and they want to stone the woman. They want to kill the woman for committing adultery. And so they ask Jesus to try to chap him. What should he do? So he stoops down on the ground. He starts writing on the ground. We're not told what he says. And then it says this in John chapter 8, verse 7. It says, when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Again, typically the older you are, the wiser you are, the know that you've also blown it yourself in life. Only he, that is Jesus, was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. What's happening here? She has done something wrong. She is in the wrong. But the crowd, their intent was to condemn her, not to help her, not to restore her, but was to condemn her. And so what does Jesus do? He's very honest. Don't do this. This is not good for you. But there is grace and mercy in me, and I grant that to you. The second time, was I was talking about the first time, is in John chapter 4, okay? John chapter 4, where Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. She's in the middle of the day because she does not want to get water when all the rest of the women from the town go and get water from the well because she's embarrassed about her life. And they start talking, and Jesus says to her that he uh, gives water that will never, you'll never be thirsty again. And she's like, essentially, tell me more about this. And so Jesus says, well, go get your husband and come back, and I will explain to you what I mean by this. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus goes on to explain, you're right, you have been married five times, and the person you are with now is not your husband. And you can imagine the guilt and the shame uh, and the condemnation she probably assumes that is going to happen to her from Jesus. But Jesus doesn't do that. 
He talks about grace and forgiveness. He reveals to her that he is the Messiah who has come. And what does she do? She goes back to the village. She runs through the town to say, this man who has told me everything I've ever done, the Messiah is here. And so the people from the village come out and they beg Jesus to stay with them for a couple of days. And then through the work of a divorced woman five times over, God changes an entire town. From someone who thought they had nothing to to add to life, who thought they were rejected, who had undoubtedly been abused, had been abandoned multiple times over, and yet God uses her to change an entire town. That's what God does with people who are broken and feel less than than other people. And so that being said, I'm going to promise, I'm going to try to do this somewhat quickly. Here to end, I want to give you some of the main ideas that we can take from this text. Again, understanding that there's a lot more that can be said. Um, there's a lot more that you, you might be feeling in response to this. Here are some things that we can take away. Uh, here's the first thing, that marriage is a big deal to God. Right? It's very clear here. Marriage is a big deal to God. You can be legally divorced, especially in 2022, for really no real reason. You can be legally divorced and not divorced in the eyes of God. We should take marriage seriously because God takes marriage seriously. It is a big deal. That is clearly what Jesus is saying here to religious leaders. Now, what we also see here is this, that marriage was created for a man and a woman as co-equal partners. Now, to us, we might culturally agree with this more than they would have, so this might be not be as big of a deal for us, although it is a big deal for us, because even if we believe this is true, it doesn't mean we actually live it out, right? So what Jesus is saying here is marriage is created for a man and a woman, a covenantal lifelong commitment for it between a man, one man, and one woman for wife for life as co-equal partners, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, that I care for my spouse the same exact way that I care for my own body. Marriage is a big deal between co-equal partners. Third thing we see is that divorce is not God's desire, but there are biblical allowances for it in some circumstances. It's not God's desire, but there are biblical allowances for it in some circumstances like adultery or abandonment or abuse. So just because you are married and you're stuck in it, an abuser cannot hold over his, his, or his spouse or she cannot hold it over her spouse, um, that they can't leave or else they're in the wrong. If you have abandoned or abused your spouse, you are the one who is no longer doing what you promised before the Lord that you would do. Divorce is not his desire. But there are biblical allowances for it in some circumstances. Uh, The fourth thing is this, that divorce is not an unpardonable sin. It wasn't explicitly mentioned in this text, but as you read Scripture as a whole, we know that God's grace is sufficient for everyone. So even if you were divorced in an unbiblical manner, that does not mean that you are less loved, that you are less cared for, that you are less welcome than anyone else. In fact, if you've been through the partnership process at New City Church and we talk about divorce, we say it this way, that ultimately we want our people to know that marriage is created by God and matters to God, as we've seen today. And so it must matter to us as well. Lastly, we are all sinners in need of grace. And so if you entered into your current marriage or previously divorced in an unbiblical manner, um, but they got, then got remarried, it is very clear that God wants you to stay married, and your current marriage is not somehow less important or legitimate than any others. Divorce is not an unpardonable sin. There is grace for absolutely all of us. Two more. Number five is this. Um, How you stay married is more important than staying married. I would submit before you that how you stay married is actually more important than staying married. And this is not to denigrate the importance of staying married. It is a very big deal. Staying married married matters to the Lord. But you can still be married and dishonor God. 
In fact, in James chapter 5, it talks about, the talk, uh, James writes to husbands who say, or sorry, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5, it's, uh, Peter writes to husbands and says um, that if you are not caring for your wife, the Lord won't even hear your prayers. And so this whole like, hey, if you leave me, you're in the wrong. Listen, Jesus, I don't know what it's going to be like when we die and meet Jesus. I have no idea. But if there's like the conversation where like Jesus is talking to us, I don't think he's going to say, did you stay married? Check. Like that's not how it works. What he's going to say is how did you treat the person that you committed your life to laying down your life for? And just because you can check off the box of not getting divorced, it does not mean you don't love, you're loving your spouse. It does not mean you are serving your spouse. It does not mean you are caring for your spouse. Following Jesus is not a checkbox. We don't check up, we don't, he knows our hearts and our motivations. How you stay married is extremely important to the Lord. And so just because you are married, it doesn't mean you're honoring God with your commitment to one another. And then lastly, to end, here's what I would say. That Jesus will never divorce his bride. So one of the biggest analogies in the New Testament is that Jesus is the groom who has come to lay down his life for his bride, which is the church. Right? And, and marriage, in some of these instances, um, is supposed to be a... a um, uh, an analogy or a symbol between God's, uh, God's uh, love for us or the gospel for us that Jesus laid down his life for us. He commits to us just like we lay down our lives for, for our spouses and we commit to our spouses no matter what you've done, how you've acted, or what's been done to you, Jesus will never divorce you even if he has every legal right to do so. In fact, there's so many passages you could read. I'm just going to read one. This is the last passage we'll read. In Ephesians chapter five, it'll be on the screen. Paul is talking about marriage and he ends by saying this. In the same way, Husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. After he talked about what Jesus has done. Again, in this cultural setting, husbands can abuse their wives. In fact, historically speaking, it was kind of the assumption that you abused your wife, not that you didn't abuse your wife because you could if she didn't do what you wanted. But he says, you don't do that. Instead, he who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. Since we are members of his body, for this reason, again, he also quotes from Genesis, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Then he says, this mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. That even in our marriages, even when we fall short, if you are married, it is still a symbol to the world of what Christ has done for us, that Jesus will never divorce his bride, and so he's inviting us to commit to the spouses that we have given our lives to if we are married, to seek reconciliation, to seek counseling, to seek help if we need it, as a symbol for what Christ has done for us. Right? And this is, all goes back to the good news of the gospel, what that Jesus laid down his life for us, not because he had to, not because he needed us, but simply because he wants us to experience his love and his grace. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has committed himself to us, and he is inviting us to see and experience 